Welcome back to the podcast. Throughout the development dilemma, I've had many conversations about the challenges and the need for change in the funding and the power that lies in the NGO sector. But often overlooked, what are the nitty-gritty details that make it possible to operationalize it? What would it look like to actually change processes, to rethink the ways in which you do pay and funding equity, to think about localization and also the distinction with locally-led development? Luckily, Christine So at Humentum has been thinking deeply about these issues. And in this episode, we explore what it looks like to tackle some of these questions to bring about transparency and accountability in the development industry. What I really appreciated in this conversation was Christine's focus on practical solutions to common bottlenecks and things we could all be thinking more about in the INGO sector. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode and take away a few things you can implement. Thank you so much, Christine. You have had a host of different roles and organizations you've worked with, but I'd be curious to get your sense of what's the background you carry into your thinking and your work. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I've been working in global development for 30 years, um, but I really started from working on very technical stuff. I'm an epidemiologist by training. Um, I lived and worked in West Africa, primarily in Mali, for about 14 years, and it was a wonderful experience that has really shaped my thinking and my approaches. You work with a host of different institutions and actors who are more on the implementation side or also decision-making side, uh, and so I'd be curious what you believe drives the development sector. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm the CEO of Humentum. Humentum is a nonprofit social impact organization that really focuses on the operating side of global development and humanitarian assistance. So we are technical area neutral. We work with anybody working pretty much on any global development issue. And we really focus on the operating models, the business models. We look at helping organizations, funders, and funders with how they deliver on their missions. So funding and financial systems, risk and compliance, their staffing and leadership models, and their institutional architecture. So we really look at, we think about operating models as strategic. They have strategic value. We don't talk about back office functions. We talk about strategic operating models. And so we really want to unlock the power of doing the financing right and, you know, okay, you've always had a centralized executive leadership team. Think about, oh, we can decentralize it. We can have people in all the countries where we work. We can work remotely and actually get voices from all of our constituents rather than concentrating everybody in Washington, D.C., for example. So we help organizations with things like that. You know, I I mean, I truly believe, and again, I've been in global development for a long time. I truly believe that global development is fueled by a desire to help the common good, to improve quality of life, to make people's lives better. 
I can also put on my really cynical hat. I can go into white saviorism. I can go, you know, look at the colonial roots of a lot of organizations. I come from the, the sexual and reproductive health and rights area of work, family planning. I know all of the eugenics background of all of that. So there are some very dark roots of where global development started. But that said, I mean, on the whole, it is a mission-driven sector. It has also been allowed to turn into an industry. And I think there are people within the sector who certainly acknowledge that. But we, if you look at the policies and the operating models and the way that funding flows, so much of that is predicated on inequitable, unequal power dynamics. You know, again, the roots of global development really is from northern white saviorism countries either feeling they have an obligation towards former colonies or having a very paternalistic view of, oh, we have to help you because you can't help yourselves. Um, and in global development, we're really seeing traction around this idea of shifting power, decolonization, yeah. localization, shifting towards locally-led development. Um, and that necessarily means ultimately dismantling the way that we have done it until now. Um, but dismantling anything means disturbing the status quo. It, it can be perceived as a threat by the people who are very, you know, set up in those organizations that benefit from the system and expatriates who make a lot of money to be in somebody else's country doing their job. Uh, and I have been in that position, so I you know, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we need to rethink how all of that works. And you have a very interesting vantage point, <laughs> which includes working directly with institutions which are now trying to act upon this localization. I'd be curious to get your sense of what have you seen distinguishes NGOs, entities that carry that shift well and those that don't? So, well, he mentioned one of our core values is asking tough questions. And we try and engage with our partners and ask them tough questions. And I think the organizations that we actually see changing are ones that are asking themselves the tough questions. That's scary. And it can be threatening and it can be full of risk. And again, in this philanthropy forum I was just in for the last couple of days, it was interesting because we were talking about how private philanthropy really does not have the stakeholder, shareholder responsibilities that, for instance, government development has. So USAID is getting funding from, quote unquote, the American people, the taxpayers, they have a responsibility to report back to the taxpayers. Private philanthropy, especially if it's a family foundation, that it's their own money. But we don't see philanthropy being risk forward. We see them mm -hmm. being conservative and risk averse. And that's an example of where we see that on the one hand, there's a growing discourse around locally led development and rethinking how, quote unquote, we do development. But some organizations are asking the tough questions about the way they work, and some are not. How and does one distinguish, right? Because in the global space, I think mm -hmm. every big player has recognized the need to talk yeah. in those yeah. terms. Yeah, it comes down to accountability and transparency. So if you are an organization making statements about 
how you want to change the way you work and the way you fund and how you prioritize the voices in action and participation and leadership of communities rather than folks sitting in New York or Washington or Geneva. It's one thing to say things. It's a different thing to actually say, okay, we're doing this. And not just to say we're doing this, but also to publicly or at least openly show the process that you're going through, Mm -hmm. the questions that you're asking, say, you know, today all of our recipients are international NGOs. In 10 years, we want all of our recipients Mm -hmm. to be local organizations. That's fine. That's all well and good. It's also hard to do because what these organizations realize and run into as they start trying to do this is that they have systems and models that are built for the way that they've been doing work for years. They don't have systems and models that permit them to suddenly shift and do things very differently. So Humentum, the organization that I had, really, we work at that operational translation level. Folks are saying and thinking big conceptual ideas. How do you take that, translate Mm -hmm. that to actual action that changes their operating models and the way they work? And so again, just accountability and transparency, having metrics around it, reporting back on it, being honest about the challenges that you experience. And I can guarantee you, and we have lived this at Humentum, you know, when you're trying to do institutional change, sometimes you get it wrong. We have a set of equity principles, and one of those is to be humble and to own our mistakes. And we all have to recognize that we will make mistakes as we go along. But you know, the word commitment means that you're committed to getting <laughs> yes. it done. What might be a concrete example you could give, either be it at Humentum or with a partner where you've seen that very deliberate translation of accountability, transparency, etc.? I think one of the areas that's really interesting in this is around pay equity. Um, and we dealt with this internally at Humentum, and um, we've worked with a number of organizations that are trying to think this through. You know, if you go from an organization that is structured with an office in Washington and staff in Washington who are being paid on an American pay scale, and then, you know, a country office in Kenya and a country office in Thailand, you have neat boxes in which you work. And you can say, oh, the people in Washington are in this, and the people in Thailand are in that, and the people in Kenya are in that. When you move to a more distributed model where you say, gee, with technology today, we don't really need to have all of our leadership sitting in Washington. And our leadership sitting in Washington does not represent the populations and the Mm. communities where we work. We want to shift so that we now have an executive team that is made up of people from Kenya and Thailand and maybe a few from Washington as well. Um, Then you say, oh, but the people in these countries were being paid at the country's Mm. salary scale. They weren't being paid what the people in Washington were being paid. But if we're going to ask them to be part of our executive team, do we pay them all the same thing? Do we say we need to pay them still what the pay scale is for their country? Because otherwise we're going to create inconsistencies sure. within the country's market. You know, and that's that's an example of what a lot of organizations are struggling with. Mm. And I will say that there is no one right answer. You'll hear me refer to Humentum's core values a lot. For us, the lens in all of this needs to be equity, 
resilience, and accountability. So when we are working on any operations issue, we will start with where you are, but as we're thinking about where you may want to go with this, we are gonna be asking you questions about, is this equitable? You know, is your organization resilient? Maybe, maybe the answer is you wanna be resilient, but you wanna close out your organization and shift to another, you know, shift your work and, and, and maybe your vision is that you close in five years. You can still have resilience in the way that you do that. And then accountability is really, I think, critical in all of this. And accountability needs to be multi-directional. So it's not just a funder to its donor, or sorry, not, uh, an organization to its funder. It's typically thought of, I think, also as a CEO to their board, but it's also an organization to the communities with whom they work. Mm. And all of this needs to be multi-directional. Mm. It's, it's a really helpful kind of larger picture with which to assess how these things translate rather than just piecemeal into sections. One thing you brought up was this push we've seen to localization and localization in funding and large NGOs trying to think about what does it mean not only through our employees but also through the institutions we might fund to give out more grants to locally-led institutions. I'd be curious what you've seen as some of the challenges to those changes. Yeah. Well, first, one note that I want to make is that I think we are increasingly acknowledging that language is important. And so you were just using the term localization and then talking about locally-led organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a growing feeling that localization and locally-led development are two different things. Localization, and again, there are people who may use it and sure. give them interchangeably, <laughs> but for me and I think for, for the people that I'm talking to, localization really is being seen as, for example, an international NGO that is creating affiliates in countries mm -hmm. that are their own affiliates. So they are localizing their organization, but those organizations, because they come from the mothership, are not seen as locally led. Yeah. Um, whereas locally led development, which is also called locally owned development or locally driven development, really consists of organizations that may have started as grassroots organizations, um, but they are organizations that were founded in the communities in which they work led in the, by mm. people in the communities in which they work and may grow and may become national in scope and may become multinational in scope, but they have a different origin story. Yeah. And so that's an important yeah. distinction to make. So I think that if you're trying to work from the same structural parameters and mindset, but expect a different outcome, yeah. you're probably not going to get it. If you try to do something over and over again and you expect to get a different oh, yes. outcome, then, you know, that's the definition of yeah, insanity. Yeah. And, you know, I've watched USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, really struggle with this because it is a U.S. government agency. Its funding comes from the U.S. taxpayers. There is absolutely a global development industry based in the United States of large international NGOs that have their headquarters there, that employ thousands of people across the United States working in global development. It is a big business. Yeah. Washington, it's a big business. 
And there is a very close relationship between USAID and these organizations. And at the same time, USAID has said, okay, well, we want 25% of our funding to go directly to local organizations. Right away, that threatens those international organizations that have been USAID's partners for years because it's, it's threatening to the status quo. It's changing the, the model. We have now seen that USAID has softened some of their language. Mm. So they are also thinking about, oh, well, a percentage of this can actually be, you know, that we can demonstrate clear participation by <laughs> locally led organizations in these projects rather yeah. than the money going directly to those organizations. But one of the very real challenges that USAID has, and I have worked for them and I have worked for those big organizations, is, you know, funding lots of smaller grants. Yeah. So right now, AID funds organizations for $10 million, $100 million. Funding organizations for $5,000 or $100,000 is just technically very hard to manage. It means lots, you know, you're dealing with a lot more grants to manage and they don't have a structure set up for that. Yes, the only caveat place is in a context where you feel you must manage it. Exactly. But that's precisely the point is they're trying to manage it from more or less the same framework that they've always used. They haven't said, okay, we're just going to do, you know, from now on, we only do con sure. unconditional cash transfers, for example. Yeah. Hands off. Or Mackenzie Scott. Or a Mackenzie Scott yeah. approach where we just give organizations money and we say, we trust go for you. it. Yeah. yeah. And so that's a perfect example of you have to break the existing mm -hmm. model or if you're Mackenzie Scott, come up with a, you know, I don't think it's entirely new, but I mean, she adopted a very different model. And so you can't fundamentally change what you want your outcome to be and not mm -hmm. fundamentally rethink the parameters around how you've been delivering. And what are the incentives there? Because there's a large group of many well-paid, employed individuals in the US who build very big careers out of this work. Similarly, there's a massive lobbying effort upon USA pushing this out to change the language that enables them to have more relevance as US orgs in this space. Structure. Well, I mean, I think that there's been a very slowly growing global consensus that things have to change. Mm -hmm. And over the last 25 years, there's been a lot of talk about donor harmonization, alignment of aid, um, and this idea that USAID is not the only donor out there. There are other countries out there who are donor countries um, and that they really need to work in a more harmonized manner. Um, now, part of this is because what used to be termed recipient countries, beneficiary countries, are increasing in their power. They are increasing in their wealth. They are increasing in their presence on the global stage and they are making demands. And so we do have, I think there's this huge, very inchoate global power sure. dynamic yeah. that I am not going to risk getting yeah. into in this conversation, yeah. but you know, that is pushing for things to change. USAID isn't saying that they want to now get 25% of funding to local 
organizations just because they woke up yesterday and decided that was the right thing to do. Mm. Um, there is a lot of pressure across the world to start working more in that way. Um, and there are some real tangible examples of this. Um, countries that have been recipients of foreign assistance funding dollars are now saying, you do things our way or you don't do things at all. We don't need you. And actually, while I lived in Mali, I was the chair of the donor reference group for the health sector for a number of years. And that was a group that was made up of the donors in the health sector, so external governments and bringing money into Mali for the health sector. And we worked hand in hand with the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Malian civil society to figure out how the donors could coordinate to support the Malian priorities. Mm. And the Malian government was every year setting a yearly plan with their objectives, with mm. their targets at the national level, the regional level, and the district level. And the donors were expected to align with that. Did it work all the time? No. And, you know, we certainly, I was at that point, well, I was working for the U.S. government and then I was working for UNICEF and both of those agencies, you know, certainly had their priorities and the things they would work on and the things they wouldn't work on. But we were at least making an effort to coordinate the donors and to align with those national priorities. So, you know, it is, and this is entirely how it should be, it is countries speaking about their own sovereignty, setting their own priorities, and then saying, we would love partnership in this, but you need to partnership on our terms, not on yours. So I know you've just come out of a week of a forum, having many conversations with funders and philanthropists. How does transparency play a role? Um, so I think we hear you know, increasingly accountability and transparency being noted as critical concepts that need to be put into practice in global development. And, you know, measurement and reporting have always been kind of linked to, oh, well, you know, you're being accountable if you're reporting on how the money was spent. But I think also that what we've seen is that the reporting that happens is frequently very kind of static reporting. We bought this many school books, we did this many teacher trainings, and there's been a feeling that we don't actually understand how is this impacting at a human level? Is there a flow down of change happening because these things that are you know, written into a report yeah. are actually happening? Yeah. Push back a little bit because I think what we have seen is a shift from, let's say more of the simple input metrics of that style, number of things yes. purchased, number of teach, teach courses run, to then the next iteration, which is, you could say, a little bit more kind of output metrics of like number of teachers taught, number of children given one more year of education. But what we haven't seen is then, let's say, the voices of those individuals yes. take the representation yeah. or that to be the driving force behind it. No, precisely. And I think that that's what we're I'm hoping for in moving towards locally led development that, you know, it's the impact is not just quote unquote people, you know, more kids going to school. It's communities designing the programs 
because they understand what is needed. Now, obviously, you want to have you know, experts in education who are contributing yeah. to what the curriculum might look like. But how it's delivered, for example, how we take into account the fact that, you know, this community knows what its kids need. Do, are they, do they have a place to sleep? Do they have yeah. food every day? Are they away from their families? You know, things like that. That's where the community voice should be heard in the design and implementation of these programs. Getting back to transparency and accountability, being transparent is scary. You are, if you commit to being transparent, you commit to sharing information and, as we say in the U.S., the sausage making, you know, the, what goes on behind the scenes yeah. and sharing that outwardly and in that it allows people to question you it allows people to say wait why did you do it that way or that's crazy how you know why do you think that that's a reasonable outcome mm. and i'll say at humentum i mean we have pledged to practice transparency we are working on this we for example maybe you know, at least every quarter we provide our financial status to everybody in the organization We've opened that up, but we realize that we also have to explain to people how we put together a budget because we can give people information, but if they don't have the tools to understand the information, that's not transparency. That's just, you know, information, information, information. So, so transparency can be scary because then when you share that information and if you give people the tools that they need to be able to really dig in and understand the information, then they can ask you questions. Mm. And so there is an element of risk in that movement towards transparency. And so that's when they can hold you accountable. It's harder mm. to hold people accountable if they are not being transparent or if they're being transparent, but in a very just throwing information at you way. And we're seeing, for example, more transparency in, in donor funding because there have been demands around understanding where funders get their money. So, for example, in private philanthropy, where is the money that they are spending coming from? People are asking, you know, who is on your board? Why are those people on your board? Who decides who is on your board? How does your board take decisions? That is transparency and governance. What we at Humentum are really interested in is helping to advance transparency in process in the process mm. in the decision making so kind of a level below that. a level below that exactly so transparency in operations mm. let's look at a bunch of funders they all have some way that they get into a relationship with an organization and talk about giving them funding so is that through a request for proposals is that through a let's have a lunch and shake hands and then talk about how much money we're going to give you. So first of all, being transparent about what is that access mechanism. Once you are, quote unquote, in the door, um, if you have been told that you're going to get an award from a funder, there is always a process of due diligence, of usually some negotiation around the original proposal that was submitted, there's a process of agreeing to what the reporting requirements are, those kinds of things. And again, typically that is not transparent. It is hard to know where those requirements are listed, yep. if they are available anywhere. And it is 
hard to know unless another organization that has gotten money from the same funder who you can ask. It's hard to know what to expect in that process. So, you know, those are the kinds of really operational pieces around transparency and accountability in funding that I'm thinking a lot about right now. And if we're talking about locally led development, we're talking about shifting power, creating right relationships and equitable relationships, that can't happen if there is, you know, a curtain behind which that that critical information exists. That's helpful. It's kind of much more downstream detailed process-oriented yeah. push. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I felt has been that insofar as we need to have that conversation about transparency and building it, what also needs to be there is a transparency around what power those who are giving the funds choose to, with, choose to hold. Mm. And I think in some ways are entitled to hold. I think we should have a space that we recognize ultimately this is an individual or a group who have chosen to give funds, but they're in some sense, they're no, not obliged in any way. So it's ultimately a, a choice of goodwill or good intention that will make them share more of it. True. Back to this idea of meeting people where they are. Yeah. Um, but I would certainly push anyone in that position to take the leap of faith that if you're mm-hmm. going to work with an organization that somehow you have been connected to presumably through a trusted intermediary or because you know the work, other work that they're doing through yes. other funding. Why do you have to? Yeah. And to, as you say, I mean, to some extent, yes, there is a justification for holding on to some of the power, but I think donors have to really intentionally look at that and question how much yeah. do I have to hold? Absolutely. What I would like to see, though, is for those that withhold to see an explicit recognition of we're not doing this because the system will break. We're doing this because we don't trust them. <laughs> we're not doing this because we you know, think that this is the way we'll get more money. It's because we think you'll waste it. Like that at least is an honest transparency that I'd like to see accompany that. And then yeah. you can own that power. Fine. If, you, if that's the beliefs you have, at least we know where you stand as yeah. opposed to voicing it. And, and I think if you want to get really meta about this, (laughs) you know, you can give money to someone. Let me make this a very just individual scenario. So you see somebody sitting on the street with a sign saying, please give me money. And you just had a raise and you're feeling generous and you're like, I've got 20 bucks in my pocket. And you can make the decision Do I give that person the 20 bucks and do I care what they do with it? Mm -hmm. Maybe they're going to go out and buy heroin with it. Do I care? Is it my place to care? And then you have to make a decision, well, I can't control what they're going to do with it. So you can give them the 20 bucks and then you have to, quote unquote, trust they're going to do it, do the best thing for them with it. And maybe that's buying heroin. Maybe it's that they're going to buy a sandwich. Another approach you could do is you go into the store, you assume that they need something to eat, so you buy a sandwich and you give them a sandwich. But you've made a decision on their part of what you think they need. And you know, and, and you can blow that example up to government funders and organizations. And ultimately, is it your place to decide what it is that they need most and to judge them on it? And I think there are people who would argue vociferously that it's your money, and so therefore it's absolutely your right to do that. 
Um, but again, kind of going to that meta conceptual question, I, I would encourage everyone to think long and hard about yeah. that. Um, and again, I don't think that there's a one right answer to it, but it is absolutely something that anyone involved in giving money to someone else or giving power, giving something to someone else should be thinking mm -hmm. about and questioning. That's nice framing. And in some ways, I mean, the recent push we've seen to unconditional cash transfers yeah. is is that push yeah. um, in a sense. So I think that we are seeing much more talk about moving towards locally led development, about shifting power, mm. about rethinking the way that assistance dollars are transferred, that grant making is done, but we're hearing a lot about it. We're not seeing so much actually happening mm. in fact. And again, we know that for all the things, reasons that we've already discussed, grant making and um, funding is still very complicated. It's, very, it's a complex process to get from the funder to the implementing organization. And so Humentum is working in trying to, you know, sort those bottlenecks and come up with solutions and help figure out how we can actually make this happen. But in fact, what we're finding is that organizations, funders that are talking loudly about rethinking how they do things are not actually ready to fund innovation in the way how, that things are done. So I think that is something that in itself is a bottleneck because there are practical solutions out there. So yeah, but so I think that is a, a weakness in the paradigm that we're working through right now as the global development sector. And then weakness, does that to you speak to a lack of genuine commitment to the issue or an oversight around what would it actually mean? Because it's the, I, I yeah. I think it's somewhat lack of commitment. There's a, there is a lot of symbolism going on. Yeah. I think in some cases it's oversight where they say, ooh, wow, we really should be doing that, but we're locked into our strategy that our board approved, and sorry, my hands are tied. And then I think there's also a genuine lack of understanding of why work needs to be done on the operating model and not just on the mm. technical sure. side that is where people see their the impact of their dollars so again you know i'm a funder i want to help girls access education yeah. in afghanistan so the impact or outcome that i'm looking at is girls education in afghanistan and in the nonprofit sector we have been pilloried for asking for complete coverage of overhead mm. costs and indirect costs yeah. we are supposed to work on a poverty budget we are supposed to work for free there is a you know a long yeah. history of volunteer volunteerism in yeah. international development and so people think we should all just be volunteers that comes from a place of privilege if you're a volunteer it means that somebody else is yeah. ensuring that you have money for your own housing your own education your own food your children's well-being mm -hmm. so all of these power dynamics are in there that are saying that nonprofits should not be thinking about their infrastructure. They should not be thinking about their systems. Humentum, last year we published a report called Breaking the Starvation Cycle. Um, and in that research, we talked to 90 
local and national organizations, and they actually opened their financial books for us. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to work with them to look at, are they getting full coverage of for the work that they're being asked to do by donors? If they aren't, how are they actually filling those gaps? And in most cases, as one says, taking from Peter to pay Paul, they are taking money from staff salaries. They're not paying them or they're cutting their salaries when they don't have money to pay them. They're taking money from introducing new systems, from cybersecurity, from training and development of their staff. Um, they're shortchanging their internal workings to try and deliver on what a donor is asking them to do because the donor isn't paying them to do the yeah. work that they are being asked to do. We know that that lack of recognizing nonprofits, NGOs as you know, functioning organizations that need to be able to you know, do what they're mm -hmm. saying they can do and have their costs covered is, is hamstringing delivering on global development promises. And, you know, in the private sector, we're not saying, oh, a private sector organization shouldn't make a profit. You know, like, oh, it's the private sector, of course they make a profit. But if you're a not-for-profit, you're not supposed to make a profit. Well, I, I'll tell you, that's wrong. Yeah. The difference is that a nonprofit needs to make a surplus to be financially healthy and sustainable. It's just that they take that surplus and they reinvest it to do what they do better, to deliver their mission, to expand their coverage, and to have a greater impact. They shouldn't be operating on a starvation basis, and they won't be able to do it. It's an interesting contrast, because I'm trying to carry what we were speaking about earlier, when we were talking of you know, the big industry that mm -hmm. development sector has become, mm -hmm. which, as you said, expatriates can live very good lives, doing a lot of this work in, in a repetitive manner, and many of whom sat in, you know, in London or in the US and DC. And I'm trying to put that point of it with also the reality, which is very real around these smaller institutions and then be maybe yeah, funded by them and not getting that kind of coverage. Is that about a distinction of size, that there are big players who are kind of the fat cats who get those lines, who don't get questioned, but then they try to implement those questions with the ones they'll fund. And therefore, it's these smaller institutions, maybe more locally led, more community organized, mm -hmm. that get pushed. Is that a way to see this? So, so yes and no. We certainly see inequities in the way that larger organizations pass down funding to their smaller partners, mm -hmm. where the large organization may be receiving you know, full indirect cost coverage from their funder but they're not providing that to the local organizations they work with. And one of our calls to action is every large organization should be looking at their policy on that and they should be doing what they receive, they should be passing on to their, their partner organizations. At the same time, I think you would be surprised and I have been surprised once you see the inner workings of some of these very large organizations that are very much part of that in, you know, global development industry, they typically have very little unrestricted funding to work with because they are built, especially if they're getting primarily USAID funding, USAID covers true cost. So USAID is not giving you a fee on top. And so you are not making surplus 
um, the work that you're getting from USAID if it's a cooperative agreement. The big for-profit development organizations, slightly different, they typically work from contracts, they get fees from their contracts, and then they do actually, quote unquote, make money or make a profit. Uh, I, I think another idea that I'd like to introduce mm. here is, you know, we've been talking about large international NGOs and local NGOs. Personally, I think that's those are kind of false labels that are being applied because if you look at it in a superficial way, it's like, oh, those are large multinational NGOs and those are local organizations. If you switch your lens a bit, and this is not true for every organization, but I think this generally holds true. Those large international NGOs have been around for a long time. They're 20, 30, 50, 100 years old. Local and national organizations, some of them have been around for a long time, but mostly they have not. And what I would, personally, how I'd like to shift this is really to talk about nascent and emerging organizations and established organizations. Mm -hmm. And take some of the, I mean, and, and that I, I totally admit that takes like the whole colonialism piece out, it takes the racism piece, it depoliticizes it, and there is absolutely an argument that that's not appropriate to do. However, I think if you're just looking at organizational development, so for instance, in working with donors, you know, there's this track record and trust, and donors go back frequently to the organizations they've already worked with because they have a track record. Mm. And, you know, so how do we help yep. nascent and emerging organizations to establish the strong systems that they need so they may not have a 20-year track record but they can say i've got this and this and this and this because they're never going yeah. to have a 20-year track record <laughs> exactly. until they've been until. getting the funding for 20 years so it's a false dichotomy to say yeah. like if you think about it in terms of track record mm -hmm. to say that they're ever going to be equal yes. to an organization that's been around for 100 years but if you look at what are the systems pieces and what are the infrastructure pieces they need to show that they are a robust organization that will deliver on the mission, that's something that you can absolutely put in place, mm -hmm. whether it's been around a year yeah. or 20 years. It's a, a way to unify maybe both different lenses because they, yeah. I think, are both really useful and carry different angles, is a, a question of, are they kind of, <laughs> almost use a very political term, like, are they establishment? Yeah. actors or are they more nascent more yeah. new and more grounded? or you know in the u.s we have tons of startups who are going yeah. to hedge funds and saying hey this is our idea and we've yeah. got these things in place and give us 20 million dollars yeah. and they're getting it and you know it's because they're largely run by white men yes <laughs> who have degrees from ivy leagues and who have somebody yeah. backing them they're able to say we're young but we are robust. And so let's think about how do we help young organizations, emerging organizations, organizations that are, are at inflection points in what they can do and how they can do it. How do we help them be robust so that they can go to a donor and say, hey, it doesn't matter that we've only yeah. been around five years. We are solid. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope some of Christine's lessons and perspectives broke through and you have ways to rethink 
and position yourself and maybe rethink processes in your organization. As always, please share this podcast with a friend or two. And otherwise, if you have thoughts or opinions on either the format or someone I should be speaking to, please reach out.